know I mentioned that this week we've got a special guest speaker, so I just want to invite Omar to come and join me. Would you make him welcome as he comes? This is uh, Dr. Omar Joe Andy. If you're wondering how to pronounce his last name, it's actually quite easy if you drop the D at yeah, the beginning. Like yes. yes. <laughs> like Djokovic. <laughs> but I'm not a fan of Djokovic. No, that's okay. You didn't, you didn't have to let us uh, to make that excuse. It's all good. Um, but you probably don't know Dr. Omar. And uh, to be honest, we just met this morning for the first time. But I'm really pleased to, ha to have you here this morning. But because we're probably not familiar with you, I just wanted to take a moment just to introduce and, and if, for want of a better word, interview you and ask you a few questions. So would you just, just start off by telling us, um, uh, yeah, I guess, who you are? Yeah, um, thanks, Pastor Nathan and leadership of Hills Church for giving me the honor and the privilege to share uh, from God's word this morning. Uh, I can only say this joke in Australia, that I'm CIA, <laughs> nothing to do with chasing terrorists. I'm ethnically Chinese. I was born in Indonesia. At the age of 10, my parents brought us to Australia. So I'm Chinese, Indonesian, Australian. <laughs> there are probably some others, uh, CIAs in here. Uh, I do meet people. Um, but back in the early 70s, very different Australia. And you probably can't imagine those of you who are young, um, who weren't around in the 70s, because the immigration policy was called the White Australia Policy. Obviously, I'm not white. Uh, it was God's intervention to our life. Uh, my dad was a highly successful aeronautical engineer, worked for Indonesian Airways. He was able to get a visa through Qantas. Um, but first two years of high school, I was the only non-white. Like, can you imagine such an Australia? Uh, so I got bullied a lot. That's just not blaming Aussie kids. Kids the world over. They always pick on someone who's different. You can see I'm not very big. I didn't learn Kung Fu, so I couldn't bash these people who were bullying me. <laughs> and I became very wounded. I was shy and withdrawn. At the age of 16, in a similar church like this, my home church, Karimba Baptist Church in Sydney, God opened my eyes that throughout this world there are literally billions of people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. And there was an invitation uh, for anyone who'd be willing to respond like Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the majesty of God, hears God's voice, whom shall I send, who will go for us? Isaiah didn't have to have his arm twisted. He said, here am I, Lord, send me. So there was his invitation. I came to the front, and I'll give the same invitation at the end of my talk, to just say, here am I, Lord, send me. But what could a shy, withdrawn, wounded boy do? So I thought, well, if I studied medicine, I can demonstrate the practical love of Jesus. Because back then, I could hardly talk to anyone. Uh, so I went to Uni University of New South Wales. Uh, then God kept working and kept opening my eyes, gave me a love to do Bible teaching and help the youth and young adults. So. I eventually thought, well, it's a good time to go to Bible college. And uh, God was leading me to Africa. Well, I come from another culture, so you didn't need to convince me that we all wear glasses when we read the Bible. We read with our culture, personality. We bring so much of our prejudice and bias. 
So if I studied at a Bible college, whether it be the great ones in Brisbane or the great ones in Sydney, I'll just be learning Western theology. Then I go to Africa to unlearn and relearn. I thought, why don't I just go there and learn the issues that are relevant to them? I had a great roommate, Oscar Moriu, um, and I loved it there. So I did my Bible training there, uh, met my wife there, just to further diversify my life. Um, my wife is Caucasian-American. I mean, who would a Chinese, Indonesian, Australian marry? Uh, anyway, it gets all confusing. So we thought our kids would be confused. So we decided to make Australia home. So if there is a, there is a slide of my family photo, if you could uh, show that. Um, they don't look confused, do they, my, my kids? <laughs> that was two years ago when our oldest, Eric, got married. Uh, Eric and Jade are physiotherapists. Our daughter serves uh, as a witness in a country I can't mention in public in the Middle East. So this photo is two years old because it's hard to get a family photo when the family's not together. Um, and uh, so that's what she's doing, and our youngest is the only one who's at home with us. He um, is in finance. Um, so after all those years in Kenya, working as a pastor of a fast-growing church, uh, when I started as an associate pastor with my roommate, uh, who was the lead pastor, it grew from around 800 to over 2,000. And then God starts stirring my heart. Would I return to Australia to serve as national director of SIM Australia? That's the mission organisation that I'm part of. And Jay and Robin Knight, I can see them there. Uh, Jay and Robin are with SIM. Um, Robin does English classes in your church, reaching uh, immigrants, refugees, students. And um, Jay is the regional leader for SIM. Um, but I love being in Nairobi Chapel, like a, a rapidly growing church. We were training church planters. I mean, who would want to leave that? So I had the reverse challenge. You know, whenever I sang songs like All to Jesus, I surrendered. Ouch, would I go back to Australia? to the bubble of the Sutherland Shire. I, as I still live in the whitest part of Sydney. It's called the Sutherland Shire or the Shire. It's a real bubble. Um, but Jesus is Lord, and so once he showed me, I did enthusiastically embrace that calling and, and served 15 years as a national director of Sim Australia. Fantastic. You've summarised so much in just a few minutes. <laughs> but... That's, it's a fascinating uh, life journey. Well, so excellent. What are you, what are you doing now? I think that's yeah, something we're Yeah, so I finished up um, as a director um, in 2019. Uh, in our system, you sign up five years at a time. I did 15 years. And so I spent the year of lockdown, COVID, uh, working on my book, uh, Redefining Success According to Jesus. Uh, so I still am with SIM. I, um, they've given me the title of missions consultant because you could just put anything under that title. <laughs> I do quite a bit of speaking, coaching, mentoring, people who are exploring global mission, online courses. Um, and then the other half time is getting the message of redefining success according to Jesus. I mean, I'm pretty keen. I haven't actually read um, Dr. Omar's book yet. That's a confession, but it is on my, on my desk ready to roll. So can you let me know what the book is about? And I think everyone else here would be interested as well. Yeah, um, I never had an ambition to write a book. In a sense, it's my struggle all life long because I was brought up by a highly successful, 
intense perfectionist aeronautical engineer. <laughs> it was fairly typical of many Chinese dads that they never set us down as, as children, but we, maybe it's in our gene, but the idea of success uh, for a dad is to have at least one child climb the ladder of success one rung higher. How, where do you go beyond an aeronaut anyway? And I have painful memories when I thought I did reasonably well, you know, trying to adjust to life in Australia, being bullied, etc. Showed him a maths result. I think I came second or something. I was expecting him to say, oh, good job. He looked at it. He goes, son, these questions you got wrong, they're so easy. How can you be so stupid? And I learned for dad, anything less than 100% is as good as a failure. At the age of 23, I thought I reached the pinnacle of success for a 23-year-old. I graduated as a medical doctor, had a beautiful girlfriend, and finally heard the words from my dad, I'm proud of you, son. Well done. The only other time I've heard him say that was when I got into medicine. I thought, in those years, didn't I do anything worthy of uh, commendation? Um, but success is elusive. One of my classmates, brilliant doctor, fast forward years later, he was training to be a, a specialist, surgeon. Everybody thought of him as a success. We got the news he suicided. He didn't leave a note. We don't know why. But I wondered whether he thought he was at the pinnacle of success, looked around, is this all there is? Why continue living? So success is elusive. You get a taste and you crave more and more, and it's never enough. So I started doing Bible studies because in my dad's eyes, you know, from a pinnacle success when I was heading to Africa to study Bible college, guess where I fell from success down here somewhere. We had lots of arguments, and he said, son, what are you doing with your life? You have a prestigious, financially secure career as a medical doctor in Australia, and you're throwing it away. To become what? A beggar. You're going to go, because he knew I was interested in SIM. You might be aware, SIM, we raise prayer and financial support. He said, you're going to go around begging from your friends and churches. I was a failure in my dad's eyes. To make it more challenging, two leaders in my church, maybe my dad sent them, came to me and says, why are you doing a foolish thing? Why could you be so, you know, we need more Christian doctors in Australia. And I thought, these people think I'm stupid. I cried out to Jesus, how do you define success? And what I find interesting is that not many people who say they're followers of Jesus actually have asked that question, how does Jesus define success? So I did the Bible studies for my own healing. First year I was at Bible college, my dad didn't communicate to me. He almost... Now, when I tell this story, a lot of people assume my dad was not a Christian. He was. He was very active in our church. Now, I have permission to share these things. My dad has, has passed away. He just passed away in in November, but he has given me permission to share all these because he has come to realize 
when we were um, doing all that conflict, his error in how he defines success. And now, you know, I'm able to share openly because I have his permission, because he says as long as it would help people. So lots of that struggle. And then when I was pastoring in Nairobi Chapel, I wrote a small book, 70 pages, um, to do some fundraising, uh, similar to what you have done a couple of years ago, where this developed, uh, we as pastors raise funds. Um, and then when I was finishing up as National Director of Australia, I thought I could um, revise it. So that's how. Uh, it is amazing. And I, I can tell already that God's got a word for us today. Um, would you join me as we pray for um, Dr. Omar before he speaks? I, I would love for you to stand and, and pray for me. I need all the prayers. Are open. No, no, we're a community of faith. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Lord, uh, I already sense your spirit speaking into my heart, and I suspect everyone here this morning. And this morning we're praying for your anointing upon this man and the message that you have given us for your people to hear. I pray, Father, that you'll open our ears to your voice this morning and your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, fill this man today as he speaks, we ask. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Nathan. Well, let's see whether we can do this dance with the slides and all that. So anytime I forget to advance the slide, uh, please uh, continue. Um, so again, thank you uh, for uh, this opportunity. And um, please go to that slide. I do bring greetings from SIM, serving in mission. Um, and we'd love to continue to journey. And even though you've, we've never met each other, for most of you, we have been partners in the gospel. So I want to celebrate that. Well, you've heard a bit about my experience with success. Uh, let me give you a little bit of time to think about what is your experience? How are you? No, how are you really? Especially about success. Do you feel like a success? Or do you feel sometimes more like a failure? Well, it depends how you define success. Can you see that? So um, I, I appreciate that the youth um, being with us. You know, when I'm looking at some of your age, back when I was a teenager, success, I didn't have to be one of the cool kids, to be honest with you. I just wanted to stop being bullied, to stop feeling like I was the odd one out. A lot of lunch times, I'd just be on my own because that way I didn't get bullied. So different seasons of life, success might mean different. Are you attentive to the voices? Because some of you are hearing the lies that you're never as good as your brother. You're not as beautiful as your sister. All these lies, these voices, are you alert to them? And the worst voices now are... Have you realized, like, oh, I'm not on Facebook and all that, call me old, whatever, but it damages my soul too much. Because the damage with this is that you are often comparing your worst with somebody's curated best. You've got no chance, particularly those of you who are young. Why would you compare how you get up in the morning with somebody else's best photo with all the apps that you could put to make the 
photo even better. So it's how we define success. We all suffer from harmful definitions of success. Uh, is my gadget, uh, maybe I'm pressing the wrong button. Try this one. How about when I, oh, I just went backwards. If I go like this and it's not working, please advance. <laughs> Instead of me saying next slide. Are you aware of your harmful definitions of success? Most people are not. I used to be a GP and occasionally I had to break the bad news to a patient, you've got cancer. But I would rather be honest and tell the patient, you've got cancer. The reality of it is that in the gathering this size, I don't want to put anybody on anxiety spin, there are some of us who've got cancer. We just don't know it yet because it's still hidden. It hasn't caused any symptoms. But all of us suffer from the cancer of harmful definitions of success. So my heart for you is that you might discover what these blind spots, that you might connect with the real Jesus of the Bible, receive his help so you could refute these harmful definitions of success and redefine success according to Jesus. Sounds good? Yes. You're keen for that? Yes. But for me to do that, I'll need to be direct. I'll need to be blunt. Okay, this is where I feel uncomfortable. My, my tradition, Chinese, I worked for years in Africa. People are there, we're brought up to be gentle, to beat around the bush, give hints. Would you allow me to be Aussie? Yes. And just be blunt? Yes. Call it for what it is, yes? Okay, I guess if you don't really want me to do that, you're welcome to walk out. I, I don't know you, or you don't know me, um, but we don't have so much time. So to be blunt then, as Jesus was a blunt, Jesus warns us, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Could it be something that we call light, good, is actually darkness? Later on, Jesus, the same passage of teaching, he went on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What if some values we think are good, light, are actually darkness? As National Director of SIM Australia, I love that I got to travel to many countries. When I went to Peru, I saw these great foundation stones of the Inca temples. And if you're able to look at it, you see they're all shaped, different shapes and sizes. Whoops. Yep. So you can see there, there's these huge boulders and then these little ones. This is how they earthquake-proof their temples, because Peru's earthquake zone, so what the Earthquake happened, all the little rocks filled in the gap, and the big boulders remained. Came the uh, Spanish conquerors, the Catholic priests thought, we want to wipe out the temples, build cathedrals, but we don't have the technology. 
so what we'll do, somebody had a bright idea, let's just burn up or destroy the top part, keep the foundation and build our cathedrals on top. Brilliant idea, yes? What did it do in the minds of the Incas? We've been conquered, but our foundation remained. And so a lot of Catholicism in Peru, this is not global, it's not the same, in Peru is very syncretistic. In other words, they've combined the two religions, Inca and Catholicism. Mary is often portrayed with flowing robes, but if you look at it, Mary's portrayed as a triangle. That's one of their holy symbols in the Inca religion. Then, to be more blunt, a lot of houses, they have bulls, their fertility symbol, and a cross. You cover all the bases, right? Just like there's no atheists at a grand final. I mean, they're all asking for help from anybody, and everybody kiss the ground, cross, or whatever. It's like, we need all the help we can get. Well, we might say, how silly of them. You can't do that. But before we point fingers to them, ask, what have we done? That's syncretistic. That's combining Western ideas, or I would suggest middle-class values, and then we build trying to follow Jesus on top of these middle-class values. The middle-class values that are very influential now, there are lots of good things about middle-class. The globe over, when people do community development, they come into poor communities, as people respond, whether it be to the good news of Jesus or to better uh, community principles, they often do rise. So I'm not saying keep the poor poor, right? There are good things about middle class values, but there are three that are very harmful. They are independence or individualism. So it's all about me. Um, and then sometimes even... In churches, we sing songs that it's just me and my God. When do we get reminded that the Bible emphasizes community? Pastor Nathan said something like last week, we are better together. You cannot follow Jesus individualistically. It won't work. You cannot discover your blind spots by yourself. The second one is materialism, consumerism, and then the third is pleasure-seeking. So anytime I use the term pleasure-seeking, I'm not just referring to just sexual immorality. It's often just to be comfortable, to be safe, healthy, secure. What if our definitions of success are really based on the foundation of middle-class values more than on the teachings of Jesus? What if that's our blind spots? How would you know? So the next slide shows that we cannot see our blind spots. This morning, I had to look at a mirror to comb my hair, right? I can't tell what my hair looks like. Now, this picture, what I really love is that I even have a more challenge looking at the back of my head. So I need somebody else to hold up the mirror. Who are the people who hold up the mirror to you? that you might be able to discover your blind spots. One of the ways that's a challenge for us is when we're immersed with other people who have similar blind spots. 
Like, who's going to show you your blind spot if they have the same blind spot, right? That's the challenge for us who are middle-class Christians in middle-class area, in middle-class churches, and we don't leave our bubble. Uh, I've only been here overnight, but you're, you're in a beautiful surrounding, just driving here, all the trees, the beauty. I was just driving. I could have been lost just driving around and enjoying. <clears throat> so who defines success for you? For the longest time, it was my dad. I longed to hear from my dad, I am proud of you. So who's drawing up the letter of success for you? We all have someone or some people. Could be our spouse if we're married. Those of you who are parents, who defines success for you? They're sitting in the third row at the front. Your children, right? It's really hurtful when our children tell us, you're not my friend. I say to them precisely, I'm your dad. One of my culture shock is one of my kids, they became real Aussie. He was really good with sarcasm and uh, his jokes. And he says, that's what my mates do. They insult their dad. That's how I thought, well, I'm not your mate. I'm not your mate's dad. I don't appreciate being insulted for the sake of the sarcasm, the humor, and so on. Uh, but notice how a lot of advertising is pits at children. A lot of car ads are at children so that they harass their dad or their mum to buy this better, more fancy car, house, etc. So we need to be alert to that. So let me give you 30 seconds, you know, jot down or whatever. Who defines success for you? Because if you haven't identified who defines success for you, that could be a blind spot. And until you define who, you might not be able to define what. Uh, their definition of success. Now, of course, with my dad, it was rather obvious when he said, son, you're going to become a beggar. I thought, okay, I get what your definition of success is. Uh, but for some of us, it may be more subtle. So just 20, 30 seconds for you uh, to, to do that. Now let's consider how do people in the world define success? So if we were all to go here to your nearest shopping mall, wherever that might be, and interview people, what might people in the world say? Um, what is success? Because we are marinated. We immerse in the middle-class culture. So just like a meat sitting in a marinade cannot help but absorb the soy sauce, garlic, whatever, we can't help absorbing middle-class values, unless you're alert and you refute it. So here's a bit of a list um, that the world defines success essentially according to what you possess, the house you live in, the cars you drive, the phones, the gadgets, or being popular. Uh, so particularly for youth and young adults, uh, it's what other people think of me, how many likes when I post. I've observed one of my kids, whenever they post something, I could always tell whenever they posted something because they're hyper-anxious. They keep looking, how many likes, how many, you know, whatever. Um, that's their anxiety, popularity, approval of others. So for me, it was the approval of my dad, uh, the power of the influence, the pleasures we could afford, uh, appearance, 
Um, now, I notice some of you taking photos. Uh, I have left a PowerPoint, so feel free to download my PowerPoint. Um, I don't copyright, uh, as long as you don't eventually accuse me that I've copied your PowerPoint. Uh, so um, you can access to that. Uh, but anyway, even if I'm speaking fast, because I will need to go faster, don't worry if you miss anything, because it's all in the book. Make it easy for you. So it could be about our status, the achievements. Uh, which ones are you vulnerable to? For me, it's about achievements. Which one impacts you? Okay, so if this is how the world defines success, um, how do most Christians define success most of the time? Let me show you a list. Uh, there's not a glitch in the system. I have advanced the slide. This is where if I could be blunt and direct, perhaps most Christians define success most of the time the same as the world. No, no, you might say, we, we have modified, we make modifications. Granted, unlike the people in the world, they might lie, cheat, steal, they gossip, they bring their work colleagues down, they trample over people that they could climb up, like Alan Joyce and so on. No, no, we Christians, we will get these through honest, hard work. The Protestant work ethic. Some denominations, they're more honest, they say, no, we name it and claim it. By faith, we pray. Others say, no, it's by obedience to the word of God, by prayer. But we're leaning the ladder of success against the same wall. For example, when uh, we bought a house, at that time I was working as a doctor. Some friends helped us move. A friend looked around the house and said, oh, this is a nice house for a first house. Is that a compliment or is that an insult? I think she meant it as a compliment back then, right? If 30 years later I'm still in that house, is that a compliment or an insult? No self-respecting doctor could be in the same house 30 years later, surely. But who says you have to keep moving up? Middle-class values. One of my... The real challenge is that our youngest, again, I have his permission to share this story, Stephen was embarrassed with the house we lived in because it's really at the bottom of the market. Because my wife and I spent a lot of our working years, early working years, uh, as missionaries or volunteers, by the time we were to buy a house, we didn't have much savings. We didn't want to be over mortgages. So I only looked at five houses because that's all that we could afford. It's, it's a good house. It keeps us reasonably dry in, when it rains, etc. <laughs> but Stephen was embarrassed. And he's, uh, between the age of 8 and 12, Stephen and I had conversations that went something like this. When he said, Dad, I wish you had stayed working as a medical doctor in Australia because then you could earn lots of money. We could have a bigger house, better house, two stories with a swimming pool. You could also buy me. He had a long list. <laughs> I tried to explain, Stephen, for your mum and me, life's not about the house we live in. Or the cars we drive. It's about following Jesus, doing what he wants us to do. Stephen said, Dad, you can just say you follow Jesus. 
and do whatever you want. People at church do that. In Stephen's assessment, the friends that lived in bigger, better houses, mansions on the waterfront, where are they on Sundays? At church. They're just saying they follow Jesus, but they're just doing whatever they want. So because we have the youth, please let me be clear, that is not what it means to follow Jesus. Don't do a Stephen when he was 8 to 12 and that you think you could just say you follow Jesus, do whatever you want. If we say we follow Jesus, would we not define success according to Jesus rather than according to the world? But it's really hard to see. So Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit God, said, money, when it takes a hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lusts, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. Why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, like the one you're in now, Surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you, you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world that is global, the 90% of the people who lived in poverty. Uh, you compare yourself to those in your bracket. And this is the never enough syndrome. You buy a house, you're happy for maybe a few years. Then you start thinking we need to renovate. Or we need to buy, we need to improve. The never enough syndrome. So that's one of the major harm of uh, these definitions of success according to what you possess or the world. Um, comparison, competition. Um, I graduated uh, with three other doctors. We were in the same Bible study group together out of those four now. One is an anesthetist, another one pediatrician, a third one a reconstructive surgeon or plastic surgeon, and then there's me. Do I feel like a success? Not if I look at the house I live in. At Nairobi Chapel. So this happens in ministry and mission work as well. There were four of us pastors who were close friends. Out of those four now, you fast forward a couple of decades, two are bishops. One is a leader of a church planting movement. They've probably planted about 30, 40 churches by now. And then there's me. Do I feel like a success? Now, interestingly, two of my mates said, well, at least you've written a book. Um, <laughs> but you see, there's no end to comparison. Worse still when we start competing. So there's all those other harm you could see. Uh, greed, nobody thinks they suffer greed. Jesus will warn us, we can see. Um, and the worst is neglected family, at least humanly worse. When children are neglected because mum and dad got to work to pay off the mortgage, they're exhausted. Uh, the worst uh, is the more success we have, often we're tempted to be more independent of God. But we don't have to live this way with all this harm. We can connect with the real Jesus of the Bible and receive his help. But again, even connecting with the real Jesus of the Bible, notice what term I use, the real Jesus of the Bible. How do you know the Jesus you're worshipping is the Jesus of the Bible? Not some concocted Jesus. So David Platt warns us in a book called Radical... The dangerous temptation is to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we're more comfortable with. A nice middle-class Jesus. 
a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American or Australian dream. We're moulding Jesus into our image. And the danger now is that when we gather, we may not actually be worshipping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshipping ourselves. Let's now turn to the Bible and read what the real Jesus of the Bible said about success. Now, the next section I'll do fairly quickly, not because it's not important, but you see, I've spent the bulk of my time trying to show us we might have blind spots. Because if you're not willing to acknowledge you might have blind spots, the next 10 minutes will be irrelevant. Do you see that? So the teaching is important, uh, but it only would make sense if you're willing to accept we might have blind spots. I'll read the passage and be alert to how Jesus defines success. And then I'll give you 30 seconds to turn to your neighbor uh, to talk about how Jesus defines success. It's a fairly familiar passage. In Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then Jesus said to all of them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In one sentence, Jesus refutes middle-class values, worldly success. It is not about what we possess, our achievements, symbols. This was the most difficult concept to understand even back then, so Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. The old Australian dream come true to retire early. The man thought himself on the pinnacle of success, but listened to God's assessment of him. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. With whoever, not just unbelievers, pagans, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to all his disciples, therefore to us, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Do you see the connection? Sadly, a lot of preaching divides it. I have never heard a sermon that combined the two sections. I've heard sermons about the parable of the wealthy farmer, And then I've heard sermons about don't worry about what you live, what you eat. Why is Jesus talking about don't worry about your life? Because now he's saying, this is what it means to be rich towards God. 
For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? For the pagan world, the unbelievers, runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, 30 seconds. Turn to the person next to you. Bullet points. How does Jesus define success? We're going to be really quick now. So I think three essentials in the eyes of Jesus, to be God's children, to be kingdom-focused, and to give generously. And they go against middle-class values, being God's children against the individualism and independence of God, being kingdom-focused instead of self-absorbed, thinking life's about me, and then to be giving generously instead of materialism and consumerism. Easy, right? What's hard to understand about that? The challenge is the practice. So I'll just raise a few questions of practice. And this diagram, Reflection Action, out of South America Theology, they often accuse the West of just staying in the realm of theory. We're good with the theory. You could find PhD on any topic. Our challenge is the action. So even the house I live in is an action. Even as I suffered the pain that my child was embarrassed, towards me, that I was a failure in his eyes compared to the dads of his friends, it strengthened my conviction, the theory that life is not about me. And then there's the upward spiral. So even when I give the invitation for some of you who will come to the front, it's an action to strengthen your conviction that life is not about you, that you're willing to surrender and redefine success according to Jesus. And some of you, God's been stirring your heart to say, here am I, Lord, send me. Whether that might be to the remote part of Australia, might be to the remote part of this world, uh, for you to be a witness. So it's the action. So being God's children, um, I think you'd be quicker than me changing, so I'll just keep, just keep changing slides. Being is far more important than doing, and we need to be dependent on God. The question of action is that where might you place your identity and security on anything else or anyone else 
other than Jesus. We're often like your Sunday school when the question is, where do you place your security? Jesus. Really? Maybe it's our superannuation, our savings, our house, the person we're married to, whoever, whatever. Um, because we are in this whirlpool of self-absorption. So you could almost say it's not our fault because we're marinated in the culture, the advertising, marketing that keeps saying to us, life is about you. You are the most important. And that's why we need to fight. It's really hard to follow Jesus in the 21st century, especially in middle-class Australia. So I want to be clear to diagram it. I'm not asking you to squeeze a little bit more of Jesus. When I invite you to come and say, here am I, Lord, send me, if you feel like, okay, God, you've twisted my hand long enough, like, don't bother. I only want people who are enthusiastically saying, Lord, you are worthy. So I'm not asking for you to squeeze in a little bit more of Jesus and you think, this guy doesn't know that the cost of living just keeps rising. How am I going to give a bit more generously? Wrong question. The question needs to always be, who is at the core? So this is not a self-help book. We cannot redefine success according to Jesus on our own, in our own strength. We need to have radical surgery from the inside out. So the next diagram shows that at the core is what Jesus is saying, being God's child. And when you have the core, your confidence secure that God is enough as our Father, then you can be kingdom-focused. You could, have, you could be ridiculed. Some of us, including me, with all my history of wounding, I don't always volunteer that I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't want to be laughed at again. I, I've had people in nursing homes laughing at me following Jesus, you know, patients with dementia uh, ridiculing me. I, like, I don't need those sort of things. But am I secure in being God's child? Then I can risk ridicule. I can be kingdom-focused and I can be giving generously. So the blind spot about giving generously, what might that be? Classic blind spot about giving generously. When you think you are already generous. Yes. If, if we think we're already generous, we don't need to grow in that area. And sometimes some of my pastors compliment us for our generosity. I know what some of my friends make. I feel like, can I ask you, how do you define generosity? Well, often we think of tithing, 10%. So if you give 10%, you're generous. If you give 20%, you're super generous. How does Jesus define generosity? So I hope one of your takeaways is to keep asking, how does Jesus define dot, dot, dot? Who did Jesus put on a pedestal as a role model for generosity? A widow who gave all that she had. Jesus turns it upside down. Generosity is not how much you give, it's how much you keep for yourself. So John Piper, in book Desiring God, the issue is not how much a person makes, the evil is in being deceived into thinking $100,000 salary must be accompanied by a $100,000 lifestyle. God had made us to be conduits of his grace. 
What would it look like if radical followers of Jesus set a cap to our lifestyle? That when God blesses us more, we don't have to keep moving up, buying better house, up, up, up. We can learn to be content and keep giving more and more. That's what John Wesley did. That's what William Colgate of the Colgate Toothpaste Company did. People estimated that Colgate, by the time he retired, gave 90% of his income because he set a capping point. Warren Buffett lives in a 60-year-old house or something like that. So it is possible to refute worldly success. Last point, redefining success, we can only do it in community. Um, Pastor Nathan talked about this last week, so I don't need to talk much about it. Uh, you must be in a community of faith, in a small group that's functioning. Perhaps you would consider studying the book uh, so that you can collectively, as a team, redefine success according to Jesus. So the book retails for $29. Uh, today it will be available for $20 just uh, in the foyer. Uh, Jay uh, Knight is helping me with the sales. Um, and then the e-book's available on redefiningsuccess.com.au. Let me wrap up then uh, with the motivation. Why bother? Why bother redefine success according to Jesus? Why not do a Stephen? Uh, just say you follow Jesus and do whatever you want. People at church do that, as Stephen said. It's got to be about your motivation. So I want to be clear. If you're feeling a bit of guilt, um, you know, as if I've twisted your arm, that's not my intention. Because motivation of guilt or fear will not last. The only motivation that will last, that will transform our lives, is love. Love for God and love for people. So years ago, when I was first heading to Africa, first time, uh, my friends wanted to give me a good farewell party uh, at a fancy hotel in Sydney. They had a chocolate festival. My friends knew I loved chocolate, uh, particularly dark chocolate, the liqueur-scented chocolate. Um, and so they paid. It was really expensive. You come into a huge ballroom, like about twice the size of this room, and all these tables lined with everything chocolate you could imagine. And you could have as much as you like, and I did. Eventually, I had to go to the toilet. Um, and I passed by another hall with a signboard. It was a medical conference, the topics and the speakers. While I was washing my hands in the bathroom, two doctors walked in talking about the conference. And I had these deep thoughts. You can enjoy this lifestyle. Not because your friends are paying for you. Stay in medicine, work seven to 10 years, you'll get invitations to conferences like this. As a doctor, 10, 15 years, you'll be earning so much money, you could afford to stay in hotels like this. But you're throwing away, giving up this lifestyle. What for? Is it worth it? With those deep thoughts, uh, washing my hands, I mean, by then, they were sterile. I could have done surgery. <laughs> you might be tempted with the same question. Why bother? Why not live it up? When people ridicule you, for your love for Jesus. Why keep doing it? Well, please remember the question is not, is it worth it? True, I've given up that lifestyle. I can't afford that. It wasn't for my home church. It wasn't for SIM. The question needs to always be, is he worth it? Is Jesus worth that much? I had a rare, unnerving experience, as if the Lord Jesus walked into that toilet and asked me, Omar, am I worth this much to you? 
the presence of Jesus felt so real, I wanted to shout, Yes, Jesus, you're worth this much and much more because you died for me. Paul puts it best, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, for Christ's love compels us, motivates us, because we're convinced that he died for all, that those who live, those of us who receive his gift of life should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. Jesus is worthy of our entire devotion to redefine success, not according to the world or middle-class values, but according to Jesus. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by people of all nations. Will you stand as we close in prayer? Let me give us moments of silence for you to respond to the Lord Jesus. to declare what he is worthy of from you. <coughs> Our Father, how good it is that we can come to you just as we are, as your precious daughters and sons. I sense many of my sisters and brothers want to confess where we've been caught up with middle-class values and worldly success. So whatever it is that Jesus is shining his light on, I invite you to confess. As we confess, and as uh, we might be reminded even as we go from here, remember in 1 John 1, 9, it says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive the forgiveness, the cleansing from Jesus because his blood cleanses us from all sins and shame and guilt. And now I invite you, if you want to declare to the Lord Jesus, you are worthy of my entire devotion. I invite you to come forward as a response. Perhaps your cry is, here am I, Lord, send me. I don't know what that looks like, God maybe hasn't shown you. He's asking, are you willing? He's not asking, are you capable? In fact, you're probably feeling like I was feeling when I was 16. Weak. What could God do with a shy, withdrawn, wounded boy? But all he asks of us is to be willing to surrender. So if that's what you want to respond, I invite you to come to the front and someone will pray with you. 
But remember, I'm not asking how impressive you are. In fact, it's a sign of declaring our weakness. And that's why we need people to pray with us. And you're actually asking this community of faith to pray with you to fulfill God's calling on your life. Father, I sense all of us want to cry out to you that unless we see you more clearly, Lord Jesus, the frills of this world is enticing. And so, Jesus, would you open our eyes that you would outshine the glitter of this world, that to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, would mean so much more to us than the applause of people. We cannot do this by ourselves. And thank you for this community of faith. Uh, Father, would you continue to empower Hills Church to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that you would shine through Hills Church, that this will be like a light on the hill that continue to influence this community and beyond. So let's continue to receive God's power, His healing, and be motivated by His love. And will you, um, would you come to the front now to declare that you are saying, Jesus, you are worthy of my entire devotion. Here am I, Lord. Send me to whoever that might be. Amen. Amen.